This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. This episode is the second on the Scopes Monkey Trial and the culmination of an entire season of the show. It can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back to the beginning of season five. It was a savage encounter, and a tragic one for the ex-Secretary of State. He was defending what he held most dear. This is an excerpt from a best-selling book of the 1930s, when the nation was mired in the Great Depression. People looked for hope wherever they could. Movies, radio, and in this case, nostalgia. Only Yesterday, that's the name of the book written by Lewis Allen, was a smash hit, transporting people just one decade earlier, from the breadlines to the Roaring Twenties. It's a quick entry, just a few paragraphs. But this retelling of the Scopes Monkey Trial shaped how people would see it for decades. Darrow declared that his purpose in examining Brian was, quote, to show up fundamentalism to prevent bigots and ignoramuses from controlling the educational system of the United States, end quote. And Brian jumped up, his face purple, and shook his fist at Darrow, crying, quote, to protect the word of God against the greatest atheist and agnostic in the United States. I've been telling this long story this season, how Christian fundamentalism rose in the United States, from reinvigoration of prophecy after the French Revolution to the creation of dispensationalism, a new interest in premillennialism. New theologies that challenged the veracity of the Bible encouraged some Christians to stray from literal readings of the Bible, while others built theologies designed to reinforce belief in the scriptures. The Spanish-American War pushed some evangelicals to embrace war as an evangelism tool, while the brutality of World War I affirmed the belief of many that the world was about to end. Through a big chunk of that time, William Jennings Bryan was in the public eye, first as a member of the House of Representatives, then a celebrity on the lecture circuit, three-time presidential nominee for the Democratic Party, later Secretary of State. Now, he'd earned the title of Mr. Fundamentalist. No small undertaking for a man who was a fundamentalist more in title than in belief. Brian was an accomplished star, known the world over. A man of God who preached a mishmash of social gospel and fundamentalism and helped to shift politics in the United States. But 50 years later, he'd be known as a rube backwards, the man who single-handedly killed the movement, even though he didn't. But the lie started there, with only yesterday. Theoretically, fundamentalism had won, for the law stood. Yet really, fundamentalism had lost. Legislators might go on passing anti-evolution laws, and in the hinterlands, the pious might still keep their religion locked in a science-proof compartment of their minds. But civilized opinion everywhere had regarded the Dayton trial with amazement and amusement, and the slow drift away from fundamentalist certainty continued. Did Brian steer fundamentalism on a course to obscurity? Did his testimony on a hot day in Dayton, Tennessee, 
stop the spread of Christian fundamentalism? Did he make a monkey of his people, his party, and his God? You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause in the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. When we left off in our last episode, the trial of the century turned out to be a dud. Hundreds of members of the press descended on Dayton, Tennessee to witness a battle royal between two of the most famous men in the United States, William Jennings Bryan and his one-time political supporter turned foe, the infamous lawyer of unpopular causes, Clarence Darrow. A week of procedure and scuffles yielded no gold. Yes, there was a verbal gem here and a quick back and forth there, but no last man standing battle. Without much to report on, some of the press went home, thinking this thing was pretty much over. But the linchpin moment was yet to come. A trap, expertly set by one lawyer and stumbled into by another. Only yesterday, written much later, would get this event completely wrong and shape the way we've been describing fundamentalism for decades. When William Jennings Bryan, the lawyer for the prosecution, was called to the stand to represent fundamentalism itself. It began with the closing arguments. Bryan was expected to shine. This would be his moment. He had been talking about it for two months. This is Edward Larson, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Summer for the Gods, about this very trial. He now teaches at Pepperdine University. William Jennings Brown was not much of a debater. He was more of a stump orator. And if he had a speech, it sang. He was a beautiful public orator. Decades earlier, his cross of gold speech not only won him the nomination of the Democratic Party for president, but went down as the greatest speech in convention history. The man could deliver and Almost everyone was looking forward to his closing arguments in the Scopes trial. And so he had prepared and carefully crafted a closing argument, which was one of his great speeches. Ryan was a majoritarian, a believer that the majority opinion among parents should decide what their children learn in school. He also wanted to point out how he thought Darwin's beliefs led directly to terrible outcomes. Brian had read the works of Friedrich Nietzsche, which say that the highest goal of humanity is to evolve, not to love our neighbors, and that the only way to do that is to reject Christianity. It's a sort of evolution-first idea that justifies stepping on other people if it means furthering the species. Brian and other people like him 
didn't want that taught to their children because it could lead to more cruelty like they'd just experienced in World War I. That was Brian's planned speech in a nutshell. And so they thought that was going to be given on Monday, along with Clarence Darrow, who was famous for giving mesmerizing closing arguments. Darrow, the infamous atheist lawyer, was forever in the newspaper for his participation in sensational trials of the day, defending Eugene Debs, Leopold and Loeb, and now evolution in the classroom. Both men were at the top of their game. The closing arguments were supposed to be exactly what the public wanted, a duel between the two juggernauts. But Darrow had a trick up his sleeve. He knew that under Tennessee jurisprudence, if the defense waives its closing argument, if Darrow were to give up his closing argument, then under Tennessee law, the prosecution cannot give a closing argument. Brian can't give his either. Thus, Darrow could avoid giving Brian an open stage, essentially silence his opponent. Brian had barely spoken all week. He mostly left that up to the local prosecutor. This final speech was going to be his big chance, and it was stolen from him. Darrow, on the other hand, sprinkled his opinions throughout the past week. The nation heard lots from him, and relatively little from Brian. This was a master stroke. Darrow wanted to keep him on his toes. So when that last day comes, Darrow, who always has a plan, a very clever lawyer, he's going to waive his closing argument, and therefore he's going to leave Brian unable to speak. Darrow wants to pick a fight. And therefore he had come up with the idea that at the last minute, I will call Brian to the stand as an expert witness. Now, Brian qualifies in a way as an expert witness because he had a weekly column in newspapers about the Bible that was published throughout the country, and he published books on biblical interpretation, and he spoke widely about the Bible. He also knew that Brian was a very proud man, and so he had spent the whole week in the courtroom and speaking to reporters after the trial, just belittling Brian. He's too scared to talk. He's not participating in this trial. He's just sitting there and letting the prosecution do everything. He's afraid to defend his cause before the public. So he kept needling him in this way. And his hope was that at the last minute, he says, look, you won't take my other witnesses. I have one more witness I want to call. The defense desires to call Mr. Bryan as a witness. To keep Bryan from sensing his intention, Darrow had one of the other lawyers call him to the stand. Bryan was no dummy. He decided that if he could be called, so could Darrow. If your honor please, I insist that Mr. Darrow can be put on the stand and Mr. Malone and Mr. Hayes. Call anybody you desire. Ask them any question you wish. Then we will call all three of them. Brian now had the right to call Darrow and the other lawyers to the stand as well. Forget hearing the case. Forget the fact that the prosecution had already basically won. Darrow and Brian wanted their showdown. Yet, Brian had different expectations than Darrow did. He thought he'd be asked questions about the theory of evolution and about laws restricting the teaching evolution and majoritarian democracy, all things like this, things that were relevant to the case. 
Maybe he could borrow from his prepared comments a bit, not have to wing it completely. But the chief prosecutor objected. Objection! Because really, what business does Brian have being called as a witness? He wasn't there to see Scopes teach evolution. He wasn't anywhere nearby when the crime was supposedly committed. Didn't know Scopes before the trial. Didn't have anything really to contribute to the case. He was a prosecutor, not the defendant. The judge says, you don't have to come up to the stand, Mr. Bryan. But Bryan says, I want to. The prosecutor objected over 20 times, but against the advice of his team, Brian went anyway. He moves it onto that bandstand that they've built on the side yard so that the whole town can come and hear it. The judge actually moved the venue outside, saying that the floor in the building was too weak to hold so many spectators. Why not go to the bandstand? I spoke with Tom Davis, who's on the election commission in Dayton, Tennessee, and works to preserve the history of the trial, what he thought about all this. There was a question as to whether or not the floor would hold up under the weight of all the people in there. Has, has there been actual structural damage to it based on that? I'm not really one to argue with a judge. Okay. But <laughs> in the late 1970s, the county did an extensive renovation restoration. And I understand at that point they drilled through 18 inches of concrete here and there to get uh, stuff installed. My theory is the judge was hot, the room was crowded, so he moved outside. Let's just put it that way. So it probably wasn't going to collapse. Still, they moved the trial outside. Today, there's still a bandstand on the side of the building where concerts are performed and the trial is reenacted each summer. The courthouse is located in the middle of the town square, surrounded by shops and the Board of Elections. 2,000 people. They pour out from all the venues. They pour out from the towns. Uh, the women, children come out. The people hawking beverages, selling beverages and selling food come out and start going among the crowd like it's a football game. And they're all outside for this, this, what they thought were closing arguments, and instead, Brian takes the stand. Darrow practiced this moment with members of his staff. They rehearsed the whole thing. Brian came in cold. One thing any lawyer will tell you is you never ask a question of a witness unless any answer he gives can't help your cause. So he's not going to ask whether evolution's right, or he's not going to ask whether anti-evolution laws are good. Because that plays right into Brian's strong suit, the kind of stuff he would have talked about if he'd had closing arguments. He instead asked the various typical age-old village atheist questions. Asking about things like the story of Jonah. But do you believe that he made them, that he made such a fish and that it was big enough to swallow Jonah? Yes, sir. Let me add, one miracle is just as easy to believe as another. And Prosecutor Stewart, Brian's teammate in this joust, objected throughout. I object to that as argumentative. But the questioning kept going. Darrow digging into just how literally Brian took the Bible. Do you believe Joshua made the sun stand still? I believe what the Bible says. I suppose you mean that the earth stood still? I don't know. I am talking about the Bible now. I accept the Bible. Absolutely. Do you believe at that time the entire sun went around the earth? Uh, no. 
I believe that the Earth goes around the sun. And a lot of other questions along those lines. Now, Mr. Bryan, have you ever pondered what would have happened to the Earth if it had stood still? Do you believe the world was created in six literal days? Where did Cain get his wife? And then it came to downright name-calling. These gentlemen have not had much chance. They did not come here to try this case. They came here to try revealed religion. I am here to defend it. And they can ask me any question they please. This may seem like bluster, but remember that Clarence Darrow did go there to try religion. That was the whole reason the ACLU hesitated to ask him to join. Why he went around them to John Scopes himself. Because Darrow wanted to make a spectacle of Christianity. Great applause from the bleachers. From those whom you call yokels. I have never called them yokels. That is the ignorance of Tennessee. The bigotry. You mean who are applauding you? Those are the people whom you insult. You insult every man of science and learning in the world because he does not believe in your fool religion. These questions had been asked for generations. Darrow knew that there were no good answers to them. Either you're going to sound sort of strange or you're going to deny it. You're going to say, well, I don't believe in the Earth was created in six days within the last 10,000 years. And of course, he knew Brian didn't believe that. He knew Brian believed that the Earth was very old, eons old, and the days of creation symbolized ages of geological history because Brian had written all those things. And then he's going to sound like, well, if you can interpret some things in the Bible, then why can't we interpret other things? Why can't we say that evolution is the means of God's creation? He had Brian any way he went. And Brian... You believe that all the living things that were not contained in the ark were destroyed. I think the fish may have lived. Kind of stumbled through while Darrow kept berating him. Are you the only human being on Earth who knows what the Bible means? Brian was in a tough place. As Edward Larson said, he didn't actually believe in a young Earth. He thought it was old. But admitting that might feel like a betrayal of the fundamentalist community that followed him. He was Mr. Fundamentalist, after all, and some fundamentalists, not all, believe in a literal six-day creation of the Earth. Either he was going to lie about his own beliefs, or he was going to upset his base. He's torn because there is the local town out there within his hearing, within his sight, and accepted a very literal reading of the Bible. But he also knew this was being broadcast nationwide on the radio and being reported in every newspaper in the country, from the Los Angeles Times to the New York Times to the, you know, you name it. He cared about people's faith. He cared that people believed in Christ. And he cared about Christianity. He cared about morality. And so he he was in the difficult position of having to speak to a local audience or a national audience and to both of them defend Christianity. On the spot, he couldn't do it. For him, it was agony. As long as you're talking to one person or one type of audience, you know, you can word things in a way that you never say anything you don't believe, but instead present the gospel in an appealing manner. 
God is love. Christ is peace. There's salvation. There's hope for eternal life. Those things. You can, that's what Brian usually focused on. And he avoided the details that would alienate people. And that way, more recently, he'd be like a Billy Graham. He wasn't the type of a preacher who would take a hard edge that would drive some people off in return to bring other people. He tended to be more ecumenical in his approach. This trial was followed everywhere, not just in big newspapers, but also in lesser publications like farming journals. The stakes were high, and Brian had to appeal to a wide audience. According to Only Yesterday, the book I talked about at the beginning of this episode, this moment with Brian on the stand was the defining point of the trial. And because Brian wavered on the stand wasn't as strong as maybe he could have been, he killed fundamentalism, which is the way this story is sometimes told. The people on the radio and in the audience heard the debate and thought Brian flip-flopped or was weak on the stand and killed the movement. It's that way when you see the movie or play Inherit the Wind, which is loosely based on this trial. That, however, was not the case in real life. I tried to look at next day editorials or editorials that were written in the next issue of the newspapers to see, since they were following it, what did they say? I literally read hundreds of them. And there's not a single one that declares a victor. Every one of them said, whoa, this is a mess. This has simply divided people. They didn't pick a winner. Even the fundamentalist journals of the day didn't. They might acknowledge that Brian messed up or that he had not done his very best job. But they could excuse it. Who wouldn't look like a fool if they were being cross-examined by Clarence Darrow? He's the most effective person for cross-examination in the country. He can make anybody look foolish. Conservative newspapers, liberal ones, they all saw the Scopes monkey trial as a draw. Scopes was convicted, clearly, and that was that. Despite what only yesterday said, Ryan wasn't seen as losing immediately after the trial. More importantly, they knew even then that this was not the end of the modernist fundamentalist debate. Evolution debates were there to stay. They wouldn't use the term then, but basically they've created a cultural war. They have made this issue, which was not a major issue before, they have made this to the front lines of the battle, and we're going to see a lot more about this. They knew even then that this wasn't going away, and it hasn't. The trial ultimately wrapped up with Brian's testimony on the stand being expunged from the record by the judge. But by then, it had already been broadcast to the nation and transcribed in print. Everyone already heard it. And because Brian's testimony was kind of a fiasco, the judge did not let Darrow and the defense take the stand. Brian never got his opportunity to cross-examine the defense. After the trial, Brian still gave speeches and sermons in town. He got his message out, but so had the defense and the ACLU. Two other states quickly passed laws much like the Tennessee law, one in Mississippi, one in Arkansas. In tribute to Bryan, they built a college in Dayton, Tennessee. It's now called Bryan College. I got to take a tour of the library there, and patrons of the show can hear my interview with the librarian by visiting patreon.com slash truce podcast. The town didn't hate Brian. 
even though they didn't vote for him because they were Republicans and he was a Democrat. Instead, a whole college was built there in his name. People at that time didn't see it as a failure, and it certainly didn't stop fundamentalism from spreading. What the Scopes trial did, primarily, was help to drive fundamentalism out of the mainstream. The battle had been on the radio and in newspapers. It wasn't a failure, but it wasn't the win they'd hoped for. The fundamentalists had lost their fights in the Northern Baptist and Northern Presbyterian denominations. And now this. While it was already there, I think that the Scopes trial did contribute to a sense of division that our ideas will no longer be taken seriously. And we, we fundamentalists, will be ridiculed in the way that Brian was ridiculed by Darrow on the witness stand because nobody can listen to or read that cross-examination of Brian without thinking. And even, even the mainline press, even liberals would say, this was almost unconscionable the way Darrow treated a person who had been nominated for president three times was clearly older and no longer at the top of the game. A person who had been secretary of state, this is, this is just not a Christian. This is not a, an American way to treat this person. And this sense that they, if you're going to ri so ridicule William Jennings Bryan, who, remember, was not a conservative. He was a very liberal political leader. If you're going to do this to him, and Brian and Darrow had actually been friends and allies. Darrow had backed Brian's campaigns for president. And they'd worked together to oppose entry into World War One. It just seemed to be a, a type of attack that just didn't seem right. And therefore, there was a sense that among some Christians and among some evangelicals and fundamentalists is to pull out and to um, form their own subculture. It helped push fundamentalism underground. The fundamentalists had been doing things by the D.L. Moody handbook, building their own schools, colleges, radio shows, conferences, publications, and more. Christian fundamentalists didn't really need secular society to love them. Instead, they had their own society. After all of this talk about William Jennings Bryan, all of his studies, I wanted to know what Mr. Larson thought about the commoner. Um, <laughs> It, you're right. It's a difficult question because William Jennings Bryan was a controversial figure. You can look at him in history textbooks and he moves from being a hero of populism and progressivism in the 1890s to the, the goat, as it were, of the 1920s with the Scopes trial. And not only with the Scopes trial, but also his defense of the Ku Klux Klan at the Democratic Convention in 1924. You know, it, it is a mixed story. William Jennings Bryan backs some very noble causes, like eventually women's suffrage. He also backs some failed causes, like prohibition. He fights child labor. But if you look at him at every one of these steps, there isn't a whole lot of depth there. You know, you admire some of his causes. You don't admire some of the others. He raised good points accurate points about the dangers of social Darwinism. But William Allen White, the great American journalist, who was fairly conservative himself, publisher of the Emporia Gazette, once said of Brian, and he was sort of a fan of Brian, he described Brian as like a shallow pan. 
a very wide, but not very deep. And the result is, I mean, he should not have walked into the trap at the Scopes trial. He shouldn't have walked into that closing argument. He, he should have known better. And if he once he got into it, he should have been able to turn it so he wasn't answering the types of questions in the way he was. You can see that in Brian a whole bunch of times. He was opposed to the Spanish-American War and then assembled soldiers from Nebraska to go fight in it. He sometimes seemed like an advocate for the social gospel, but didn't cut Jesus out of it the way that others did. He was, above all, a moving target. I mean, how do you put these things together? And you're you're faced with that with Brian all the time. He viewed himself as largely responsible for more constitutional amendments than anybody in American history except for James Madison and the Bill of Rights, because he claimed at least significant credit for women's suffrage, for um, the federal income tax, for a variety of amendments that were passed around in the progressive era. And so, yes, he deserves a lot of credit. He's He's an American figure, but he's a complex American figure that cannot, you know, you just can't treat him in that way, like a Washington or a Lincoln or a FDR. He, he, there's too many sides to him to easily pigeonhole him. But I do believe that he was a sincere person who wanted to help people, even if he didn't understand exactly how to do so all the time. I didn't come into this writing this book since I didn't write it with a cause in mind. I wrote it as a historian, just trying to figure out what happened. Um, and I had a, you know, a typical American's mixed view of both Brian and Darrow. I ended up the process of, of really digging deeply into both men. I came to the end, I admired both men more. I admired Clarence Darrow and I admired William Jennings Bryan more after I finished the book than before I began it. And, you know, when you look at anybody that closely and you end up in that way, that's to their credit. Bryan didn't lose the Scopes trial in the moment. Yeah, he didn't look so good. But it was the aftermath of what happened years later that really scrambled our vision of the Scopes trial. Only yesterday said it was a defeat. But the massively popular play and subsequent movie versions of Inherit the Wind made it much, much worse, portraying Brian as a buffoon. And not like he tied, but like really blew it. It's an example of art rewriting history. We'll get into that in the next episode. After the trial, Scopes was fined $100, which both Brian and the Baltimore Evening Sun offered to pay. Brian stayed on in Dayton, telling everyone there that he should have been able to cross-examine Darrow and the rest of the defense. He was pulled on stage. Why shouldn't the other guys be there too? On Sunday, July 26th, Brian attended a local church service and offered a prayer. He had lunch with his wife, Mary, and arranged to publish his undelivered speech. But it was getting hot. He was tired. Now talk about a long week, a busy life. Brian lay down before the evening sermon, and he never woke up. Later, legend would have it that he died of a broken heart, having been humiliated in front of the country. That story is not likely. It was probably due to complications with his diabetes. Three days after his death, his coffin was loaded onto a train 
with the car door open so people could see the casket. 20,000 people viewed it when it arrived at the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. His legacy was shaped not just by what he said, but by what people said about him. The journalist H.L. Mencken wrote terrible things about Brian and his supporters. I had never been on close terms with country people before. I set out laughing and returned shivering. In Mencken's opinion, democracy was a way for lowly people to fire against their mental superiors. And he saw Brian, the populist, as their ringleader. He seemed only a poor clod, like those around him, deluded by a childish theology full of an almost pathological hatred of all learning, all human dignity, all beauty, all fine and noble things, he was a peasant come home to the barnyard. Mencken's writings went on to shape the way that liberal thinkers remembered the moment and characterized the fundamentalists. Even though, come on, Mencken was no angel. He called Brian a bigot, and yet, ironically, Mencken was a lifelong anti-Semite who backed the Germans, even blinding him to Nazism. No matter where I looked in researching this season, it seems like there were few people with excellent track records. We may want to blast fundamentalism, but it seems like atheists, modernists, and society at large in that era should shoulder some of our critique, as well as responsibility for the strife we still feel today. When one side goes extreme, the other feels like it has to be even more extreme. So they push farther and farther from each other, and from common sense. The legacy of this event grew into something else completely, a reason to beat down fundamentalism. Is it any wonder that fundamentalists went underground? If the morals of society were changing, they lost their voice in the denominations, and guys like Mencken castigated them in the media, why wouldn't they go underground? Use this system of schools, radio broadcasts, publications, and conferences to slip out of the mainstream, thus becoming more insular, raise children and live a whole life in their own bubble. The pressure was there, and the infrastructure needed to manufacture an alternate society was in place. Not to let them off the hook, there is a major downside to believing that not only is the world sliding into chaos, but so is the church. It removes the drive to improve the big C church, or society. It can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. If Bible-believing Christians are not in churches, schools, and civic organizations, why are we surprised when those things slip into secular ways? Which came first, the society descending into godlessness or the retreat of Christians from society? It's a chicken and egg question. Finally, there are lasting lessons in Brian's testimony. Brian should have known better than to allow himself to get baited into the confrontation. His team already won the case. They had nothing to prove. Instead of staying calm, his pride and celebrity drew him into Darrow's trap, and he was embarrassed in front of the nation, and eventually made to look like a rube when the story was retold on Broadway. There is a time to confront, and a time to remain quiet. When his friends ditched him at the trial, he should have taken it as a sign to be cautious. He did not, and it hurt his legacy. For those of us today trying to untangle ourselves from heresies who are hoping to call people back to the Bible to a relationship with Jesus, what have we learned about what not to do? Are we to withdraw from society? 
feel as though we are always under attack? Or are we to quietly do the right thing? Love the Lord and love our neighbors. How will the history books remember us even one decade from now? Either we do the right thing the right way for the right reasons and at the right time, or we make a monkey out of ourselves and our beliefs. Special thanks to Edward Larson. He's the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Summer for the Gods. It is truly excellent and gets into way more detail than I did here. Thanks also to Tom Davis and everyone I spoke to in Ray County, Tennessee. As always, you can find discussion questions for this episode in your show notes and on the website if you want to talk about it further with your friends and family. Thanks also to everyone who gave their voice to this episode. My friend B.T. Stevenson, my brother Nick Starin, Jerry Dugan of the Beyond the Rot podcast, and Marcus Watson of the Spiritual Life and Leadership Podcast. Truce is listener-supported. If you'd like to see this show flourish, maybe even get more frequent episodes and be a part of something really big and new in Christian podcasting, support this project by becoming a patron. Patrons get special bonuses not heard anywhere else. Learn more about how you can further the work of the Truce Podcast by visiting trucepodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce.